Hello. We've got another sermon here again, going through the book of Luke. But before we do that, can I just say, if you're involved in the NHS or any of the frontline services, whether you are still manning uh, the uh, shelves in the supermarket or delivering, thank you so much. We're praying for you. Stay safe. And uh, if you need anything from us as a church family, please reach out. Can I also say to uh, anyone who's homeschooling at the moment, it's hard, isn't it? Boy, so it's hard. Uh, but listen, my heart goes out to those who are really under the cosh at the minute, uh, especially if your child is someone who really needs their routine, needs their structure. Uh, we're all out of sorts a wee bit. Uh, so please just remember that they need a parent first, teacher second. So don't worry, the, the teachers will are all in the same boat, all the pupils are in the same boat. So just uh, be a parent first. I, I was thinking about so much of some of the things that have been going on and people are, are talking about, oh, it's definitely going to be the end times and all. But truth is, people said that 100 years ago. After the Great War, the uh, Spanish flu came and killed 30 million people in Europe alone, almost 100 million worldwide total. So. These things have happened before. In fact, I was listening to one sermon and he referenced uh, Martin Luther. Of course, he lived during the time of the bubonic plague. 500 years ago, in 1527, uh, they closed the school that he had been teaching in. And yeah, they, they even closed his school. But they said to him, Luther, what, what are we supposed to do? What was supposed to happen? And he said, look, go home, get off the streets, look after the the people that you can and wait it out but the best bit of advice that he said to them was get ready to die he says if your time comes you need to be ready to stand before god and in fact scripture tells us that it's appointed for men once to die and after this the judgment we're not guaranteed any particular length of time we're not guaranteed anything other than at the end of our lives we stand before god and so can i echo luther's advice folks whatever way you are and if you lose interest in this video after this at least hear this make sure you're ready to meet god how do we do that though how do we do that well the bible says believe in the lord jesus christ and you shall be saved but what does it mean to believe not only just believing that he's real but believing in his message trusting in his message not hoping that we are going to be good enough or that we can make it in our own path, but looking at what Christ did. He paid the debt, his perfection for our imperfection because of what Christ has done, that we can stand before God unashamed and consider family. So I, I hope that, if nothing else, that uh, resonates with someone uh, this afternoon. But we're going to go back in into Luke now and we're going to push a wee bit further into chapter 16. As you're looking it up, if you have a Bible with you, I hope you do. But um, again, just keep reaching out to each other, uh, friends, family, FaceTiming, texting, even if it's something silly, a joke. You never know just who needs a laugh, who needs a distraction at the moment. Keep loving strong. Now, last time we went through chapter 15 and we went through three parables as Jesus spoke They've been critical of Jesus. Uh, the religious leaders have been critical of Jesus. And uh, he 
you spend time with all these sinners and tax collectors and rulers, and they can fathom why on earth Jesus wanted to do that. And so he gave them the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the two lost sons, or the prodigal sons. And so Jesus shared that and went through that, and, and we, we, we briefly went through that on Sunday. Jesus wants us to share in the joy of restoration, to share in the joy of what it means when someone who is precious and lost comes home. We are, as Christians, are those who should go after those who are lost because they're still precious in God's sight. As we go to chapter 16, oh, Jesus turns away from the religious leaders and towards the disciples in a parable that I think is a follow-on from the prodigal parable. It's a parable that both sons squandered what they had. The first son was obvious. He took all the money and disappeared off and came back with nothing. He wasted it. But then, of course, there was the older brother who had it all around him, but it brought him no joy. And we would say to him, you had so much and you, you didn't savour it. That's a waste. And I think this next parable is a lesson for the disciples on wasting opportunities. And I hope that as we go through this, with people self-isolating and cut off from the usual busy schedules, that it gives us a chance to seize new opportunities in the days that lie ahead. Uh, whether it's as parents, uh, as spouses, as, as neighbours, we have opportunities like never before in these weeks that lie ahead. So as we go through this, have it in your head about the opportunities that you may have in front of you. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Seize the moment. Seize the opportunity that you have in front of you. Let's read. Chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus told the story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manger, uh, manager handling his affairs. One day, a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money. So the employer called him in and said, What's this? I hear about you. Get your report in order because you're going to be fired. Hmm. Okay, so this employee, this manager, gets caught out with some type of fraud. But it's interesting that Jesus phrases it in terms of wasting the resources. That's the link to the previous parable. That's what the word prodigal means. The word prodigal means wasteful. The wasteful sons. This is the wasteful manager. The prodigal manager. It seems like the owner's given him the benefit of the doubt and sacking him for incompetence and wants him to gather the books so he can try and get his affairs back in order. I think it's the only reason that you could come up with for someone sacking someone but not kicking him straight off the premises and giving him this time that, that uh, we're going to read about. But a lesson even in this, we give an account of our actions to God. We stand before God. He owns it all. He's the one who has given it to us. So before we demonize this manager, let's remember that God has given us everything that we have. Our time, our gifts, our talents, our energy. He's given us his son, his gospel. He's given us a great commission. How much have we done with that? Could it be said that we've wasted it? Perhaps, like this manager, we're thinking more about our own comfort than we maybe should be. Have we been impotent, not realising we've wasted the master's resources? Or have we been deliberately defrauding him by spending those resources knowingly that should be used for God on ourselves, not his kingdom, our kingdom? That makes us prodigals too. It makes us wasteful. Verse 3. The manager thought to himself, now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches. I'm too proud to beg. Doesn't have the strength to dig. It really means he doesn't have the willingness to go from a white collar job to a blue collar job. He's too proud. Too proud to do a hard day's work or an honest day's work, perhaps. He doesn't want to step down to being a hard worker, working for someone else. He doesn't never mind being a beggar. 
He's not going to do that. Verse 4. Ah, I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. He hatches a plan. He starts thinking ahead. Well, if I can't stay here, I need to think about where I'm going next. It's good thinking. Here's a man whose life is not motivated by the here and now, but by what comes next. Sounds like a good role for a Christian, don't you think? We know that life is short and will soon be passed and what only is done for Christ will last. We should be thinking about what comes next. The flowery way of saying it is we should be living for eternity, living with God in mind. Verse 5. So he invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you own? The man replied, I own 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. And how much do you owe my employer? He asked the next one. I owe a thousand bushels a week, was the reply. Here the manager said, take the bill, change it to 800 bushels. Hmm. What's his big idea? He gives huge discounts to the people who does business with his master. And as soon as they paid up, as long as they paid up, they may owe him. The first guy gets 50% off and the second guy gets 20%. But I need you to grasp the scale of these discounts. But first of all, notice how he says, do it quickly. Common always want you to go quickly. Oh, hurry up, hurry up. I have another guy coming to see this car. Oh, look, this deal might not be here tomorrow. This deal might not be here later when you come back. Do it quickly. Sign, sign, sign. See, this first guy owes 100 uh, measures of oil or 1,000 gallons of oil. This would be worth three years' wages of money. And it would be the product of 150 olive trees. It's a big debt. It's significant. Ah, just, just whack half of it off. Just, just do it quickly. This one-time offer. Do it quickly. Con men are always in a hurry. By the way, this amount of oil. Who needs that amount of oil? Probably the temple. But not the churches. We do dodgy deals. This discount is huge. The deal is struck. No questions are asked. Why? Because nobody wants the answers to those kinds of questions. He wants to sign and get out quickly. This is a deal better than he had hoped for. Then in verse 7, another debtor comes in about the weight. Well, how much do you owe? A hundred measures uh, of weight. Call it 80. Amend the paperwork. A thousand bushels of weight, a hundred acres to produce. Maybe eight to ten years of harvest. This is a huge amount and he gets 20% off just like that. This man can't sign quick enough either. Of course he can't. He makes it easy for them to pay. He takes the old bills, destroys them. There's no evidence. There's no witnesses. He's very clever. It's also very wrong. It's unethical. It's illegal. But in the world of self-preservation and survival of the fittest, it's shrewd. These other clients don't know he's getting sacked. They're bound to know that there's something fishy going on. And in a world that operates in honour and reputation, they have a choice. Be in this man's debt and make a huge saving. Yeah, we'll do that deal. And so he has them in his pocket because money talks. Because even in Jesus' day, money talks. Now, here's where the story gets strange. Because you would think that Jesus would condemn this man for his behaviour. He, uh, he robs his master once, so his solution is to rob him again. What does Jesus have to say to a man like this? Well, in verse 8, we read that the rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. Here's the lesson, Jesus says. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. 
Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. So let's be very clear. He isn't praising this man for his crimes, but he's praising him for not wasting his opportunities. He's praising him for making the most of what he had right now and thinking about what comes next. Jesus isn't making a point of comparison here. He's making a point of contrast. If people who don't love Christ can be so focused on the things that are coming down the line, that they're willing to put off a little bit now for later, that's wise. That's an investment. People love talking about investments, making good investments. Jesus here is saying, well, why can't Christians think the same way in spiritual terms? Why, why are we so half-hearted in gospel investments, eternal investments? That's the point. Jesus isn't saying be bad, be dishonest, be scheming, be conniving like this guy in the story. What he's doing is contrasting our way of life with the way the rest of the world operates. He's not painting a picture of how life should be. He's reminding us how the world really is. And what our Lord is saying is we're called to a different life. We're called to a higher level. Remember what he says in John 17 in his prayer. He says, Lord, I have chosen them out of this world. They are not of this world. Paul wrote, be not conformed to this world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Essentially, what we have in this story, this parable is a bad example, but we've got a good lesson from this bad example. Those of you sitting at home now who complain about being forced to work from home, will you seize this opportunity? Take the chance that just might make a real difference. Be the parent that you wished you could be, but didn't have the time. Be the spouse that you always wanted to be, but never could quite find the time. Be the neighbour that you've always dreamt about being, but never quite found the time. Be the church that's more than just a building or committees and organisations. Now is our chance. Now is our opportunity to be the church. To be like Christ. And that's the point Jesus is making to his disciples. Before they get all smug about uh, Jesus saying these things to the Pharisees. He says, look, you've still got plenty to learn as well. Make sure you seize your opportunities. Don't you be wasteful either. Don't be a prodigal manager in the kingdom of God. Verse 10. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in larger ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with great responsibilities. If you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you are not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Christ adds a subtle layer to the first point. It's not just the negative, the passive, don't be wasteful. He then turns around and says, okay, but now let's look at the positive. Let's look at the active way. Let's use it wisely then. Let's use these opportunities that we have. You see, Christ knew something about money that most of us haven't realised yet. Money's not neutral. It's not something that can be used for good or for bad in and of itself. It has a way of pulling us towards selfishness, pulling us towards hoarding. It can seep in and control and dominate. I think this is why God only gives great wealth to the believers who truly understand what it is they're working with. You don't let toddlers play with scissors. You don't let immature believers play with money. It's dangerous. 
they'll get hurt. I think we justify being selfish with our money because we've got so little of it. And say, oh, well, if, if we have more, I could afford to be more generous. I could afford to be more kind. Jesus calls you out on this here. He says, no, that's not how you'd be at all. See, we want to get to a level of income where we stop worrying about money and then we can start being generous to missionaries and to the church and, and different people around us. But Christ says, no, be faithful in the little that you have relative to whatever it is you think you should have. Show that you can handle financial riches for heavenly purposes, even if it's just a little. And maybe God will trust you with more. Not as a reward for you to squander, but to continue in those heavenly purposes. Remember, that's the point of this story. The manager was holding back for himself what was meant to be for the kingdom, what was meant to be for the master. And the final call here then is to be single-minded. Verse 13, you can't serve two masters. You'll choose one over the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. The man who got fired decided to burn every bridge in that place of work. There was no sense of divided loyalty. There was no sense of, of owing anything. He burned everything to the ground so that he could set, make sure that he was okay for the next life, his next employment. Again, it's a contrast. As believers, if we love the people around us, if we love the God who loves us and meets our needs, well, why wouldn't we be willing to do whatever it takes for the sake of eternity? The answer normally is money. Because we're working too much to earn money. Because we're spending too much time trying to chase our own comfort. And in the end, the thing that controls us isn't God. It's money, it's ourself. It's selfishness. See, it's not about how much you have, but it's about who you choose to be in Christ. So he who is faithful in least is faithful in much. He who's not faithful in least is not in much. It's an axiom, a self-evident truth. Nobody can argue this. Nobody can dispute this. Faithful people are faithful people whether they have a little or a lot. Unfaithful people will be unfaithful whether they have a little or a lot. Because it's not about how much you have but who you choose to be. Verse 14. The Pharisees who dearly loved their money heard all this and scoffed at them. Then he said to them, you like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. What this world honours is detestable in the sight of God. Literally, they turned up their noses at Jesus for saying this. See, these were men who loved the appearance of religion. But really, they judged people by their lifestyle, by how much money they had. They had this idea that so many other Christians have today, that if you have wealth, you're, you must be doing well spiritually. God must be blessing you. If you're poor, if you're struggling financially, God's punishing you. God's cursing you. That's not in the Bible. We don't see that in Scripture. So many Christians fall into this, this trap. They, and we end up worshipping Jesus with our mouths, but our hearts are worshipping at a different altar altogether. In these difficult times, people who were busy and happily employed find themselves in isolation find themselves out of business, whether it's a social club or a gym, whether a personal trainer or, or they work a wedding venue or a restaurant or in the tourism industry. As a church, we want you to know we're here for you. If you need something, please reach out to us. We'll try our best to respond to you. 
If you're in a position to help, be generous to your local food bank, help them out, share what you have with the people around you. If you live in Lockeries, you'll have already had a letter uh, from the church on your door, or if you belong to the church, you'll, you may have already received one. If you live in Newton Arts, there will be a joint letter going out to, from all the churches offering phone numbers and help and support. Please use them. If we can help, we would love to do so. Because money and greed are not what operate us or motivate us. We trust in a God who is faithful. We want you to trust in a God who is faithful. So let's lay aside every sin and every weight that can so easily sidetrack us and seize the opportunity that we have in front of us. God bless. I love you. Stay safe.